Thank you so much for joining us today on our explorations and adventures through storytelling mysteries. A special thank you to all the patrons on patreon.com slash mocopress who are sponsors for this and our other stories and projects. You are making so many things possible, and we are so grateful for your help. Thank you. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the Moco Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. In the chat episodes, we explore problems and revelations that we've come across in our own writing projects. On this week's episode, inspirations, things that formed us as writers and creators and inspired us to do our own work. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and join us for the MoCo Expedition. you started yeah then there, there's often a point where you've gotten started but you need something to kind of push you to that next level so it's sort of the the work that inspires you to start really studying um and improving your technique or has a big impact on what you do and then there's kind of the what we're do, what we're inspired by today so first we're going to talk about work that inspired us to start writing and the earliest thing that i can remember that really got me started down the path of i want to be a writer is the original dragonlance trilogy i thought you might mention that because i remember i was in elementary school and I read them because of a friend of mine named Dustin who had them, and it was simultaneously my first real experience with fantasy in that I had read some young adult fantasy before, but this was the first one that I really, like, adult fantasy that that took me in. So when people talk about, you know, oh, and then I found Tolkien, and then I found, well, mostly just Tolkien, for me, it's it's uh, Dragonlance. And I read it through pretty much cover to cover because uh, the, the edition that I borrowed and then later bought for myself was those first three books, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Dragons of Winter Night, and Dragons of Spring Dawning uh, Collected. And I just, I read them straight through. And it was the first time that a book had ever made me cry. It was the first time that a book had really made me go, you know, sneak a light on so that I could be awake reading uh, past when I was supposed to. And it was the first book that made me think I could write this and I could write fantasy. And that's why, in my mind, though uh, uh, border is always is, is what I'm doing now. Fantasy is always what I'm thinking of in my mind. And then later, there were uh, other things that would come in, and I'll talk about some of my other inspirations for other genres uh, after you guys have talked a little bit. But my first, first, first was 
uh, the Dragonlance trilogy. Man, if we're talking about series that just made us cry for the first time, that's a whole nother. Yeah, it is. Oh, man. For me, that was Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Catcher. Ah, <laughs> oh, so sad. See, and I was nice and efficient. I got those in the same thing. That was, that was very economical of you, Matthew. For me, this is sort of a tricky question. Um, because there's so many different things that have pushed me in different directions. I think for comics, though, since that's the the main medium in which I work, so if we're, we're not going with the book that made me cry, and we're going more with um, what influenced me to adopt this medium that I love, um, I'd probably break it down into three main comic series. Um, one was Sonic the Hedgehog, in part because... Um, my mom said that we were not allowed to have any video game consoles growing up. And I think that I really wanted to have what I couldn't have. Um, and also the Sat AM show kind of got me started on that. Um, and that ended up feeding into other things. The uh, Amazing Spider-Man, which I was introduced to when we had taken a trip to Kansas, because all of our vacations were to Kansas... And not the fun part of Kansas, but the middle-of-nowhere part of Kansas, where there's one street, and that's it. And most of the people are uh, on their way to nursing homes or in nursing homes already. And it was just an incredibly boring place for a child to go on a vacation to every year. And I discovered my salvation in the attic of my grandmother's house, which was my uncle's collection of 1970s Spider-Man, and if they had any value, I promptly destroyed it, because as a kid, you have no idea that, oh, hey, this might be worth a million dollars. Um, but uh, I think that sort of was a big inspiration series. And the last one was ElfQuest, which I found at my local library, and that introduced me to an entirely different kind of storytelling in comics. Instead of it just being a generic one-shot kind of adventure, ElfQuest was this sprawling, involved, beautiful story that probably ignited my love for long, sprawling, epic tales with in-depth cultures and characters. So those are my big three. Awesome. Um, I guess from my perspective, uh, the first book I read where I was like, man, I could really, really, uh, do this myself, um, is probably the Unified World Saga by Diane Thornley. It's a, uh, military science fiction series. Um, there are three books. I believe they were promised to be more, but, uh, to, to my knowledge, um, Diane Thornley was a retired military person when she began writing them. I don't know if she ever got around to the fourth or not. But um, the point being is that I, I really kind of – I've always been a big science fiction fan. I grew up on uh, Star Trek Next Generation as a kid, and um, this was the first time I kind of got a peek behind the curtain to see how it was done. And it really helped for me because the second book has a huge uh, emphasis on martial arts as a discipline to order the mind and kind of cultivate a, uh, a disciplined personality that can, can uh, be this larger-than-life character in these books. 
And uh, for me as a lifelong martial artist, that spoke to me very deeply. And I realized that you could use the medium of writing to speak to be, to people on a variety of levels that you, that I guess that was the first time I was really faced with a, a, a metaphor um, that was, that also doubled as kind of a theme for a book. And I realized that, uh, that maybe that's the trick to writing. And then if you just do that, you can do it. Um, so that's a piece of it. Um, but going back further than that, oh, heck, if we're talking about the first time a book made me cry, um, this is kind of embarrassing. I actually cried to one of the uh, Goosebumps books by Arl Stein, specifically The Ghost Next Door. Um, but the I think the Goosebumps books were something that, looking back, had a really big impact on how I write, particularly anything horror-related. But um, when you're reading them as a kid, they're just fun, they're engaging, they're kind of kind of goofy but exciting, a little bit scary but not enough so that it's, uh, it's an issue. And, and I actually think that's really important. I think it's important for kids to be able to explore uh, the unknown, the mysterious. It's kind of cool. It's kind of spooky. Um, and something that I think that has kind of gone away, which is a, a shame. Um, but, but I definitely feel like uh, R.L. Stein was a really, really good accessible reader for, for kids, um, or writer, rather, and able to kind of... Uh, very quickly and concisely cut to the point of any story, which I admire. Um, and then as for the obligatory uh, high fantasy series, uh, mine was The Pit Dragon Chronicles by Jane Yolen. Uh, second book in that one made me cry like a baby. Um, but that one's that one's a little different as it's uh, revealed slowly over the course of the book that it's actually in the future and they're on a different planet and the dragons just kind of evolved there natively people settled and uh they've developed this entire economy on this planet that has to do with dragons so they're used for everything and uh specifically the main character is training one to fight in in dragon fight pits he's going to train a pit fighting dragon because that is apparently the only way you can earn enough money to buy your way out of indentured servitude so pokemon yeah, those are my obligatory three. There's only one thing that that I want to ask before I go on to another one of mine. Uh, Robin, what parts of Kansas are you positing are the interesting parts of Kansas? <laughs> the uh, the parts of Kansas where it's practically Missouri already. Yep. Okay. That's or interestingly, because I do like Wichita, practically Oklahoma. Yeah. Either way, it's practically somewhere else when it gets interesting. This was not uh, one of those places. So for me, another one of the early ones, I talked about my fantasy inspiration. So now I guess I'll talk about my science fiction inspiration because the modern fantasy slash mo fantasy horror stuff doesn't come until later. Um, my, my science fiction inspiration is way more highbrow than my fantasy in that my science fiction inspiration, uh, well... I'll give two different ones, one highbrow, one not. The first science fiction that got me really thinking about science fiction as a genre and what it meant and what it could be used in writing was um, the uh, three-book series by Isaac Asimov, uh, Caves of Steel, uh Robots of Dawn, and then whatever the third one is, whose name is escaping me at the moment. 
Um, but the Robots series by Isaac Asimov. Um, Foundation, not so much. My brother loved Foundation, but that was getting too far out there into the sci-fi fantasy for me. But uh, The Caves of Steel starts off in a very grounded future where mankind realized that they can't grow outwards anymore because they will gobble up all of the arable land. So they build huge encased cities upwards and they are so large and so all encompassing that the majority of the humans that live in them are agoraphobic and, and are terrified of open spaces. And there was also tension that came from uh, the first colonies uh, to outer space versus those that stayed. And so there is also a very anti-technology streak. And all of this comes to play when there is a murder in the spacer section of, uh, I think, New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the... Uh, human detective Lige Bailey has to work with a spacer robot detective, R. Daniel Oliva. And again, it was one of those eye-opening moments for me where it was just, this is what you can do. You can talk about social commentary. You can make predictions of the future and you can make it in a safe and accessible way by putting it into the future. And it it got me thinking about science fiction qua science fiction. Um, the early science fiction uh, uh, inspirations for me that were not books were Star Trek on television, and in book uh, were not highbrow rather Star Trek on television, and in book form were the Star Wars expanded universe novels, which I read voraciously up until even a couple of years ago. Yeah, those were hugely popular when we were growing up, and uh, I never really got into them. But um, I, I do take your point that Star Trek is a really, really good place for uh, people to explore how to uh, take modern issues and make them accessible and safe to talk about. You just slap a bit of a future on it, change change a few names, and all of a sudden you can talk about anything, which I, I really appreciate. I do find it interesting that both you and uh, Corey and Matt had sort of this moment of, oh, this is what you can do with with fiction, with stories, because I didn't have that conscious realization until much later in life. But there was a book that I have read and reread and was hugely influential um, that I did have that realization with later in life because I looked back on its impact. And that's The Deed of Paxnerian by Elizabeth Moon, where I read it when I was a kid, because I was probably, I don't know, 12, 13, um, and on yet another trip to Kansas, um, we were visiting a relative where no one else in the family read or enjoyed reading, and he was a voracious reader. And he saw how most of the time I just wanted to stay completely absorbed in a book, and instead of doing what everyone else around me which w was doing, which was, Robin, you need to engage with everyone else, he came up to me with this already battered 
massive tome and said, you know, I think you'd really enjoy this. This is my copy. You may have it. And so I've kept that book, and its pages have fallen out, and I've taped them back in, and its cover's gotten ripped up, and I've taped it back together. So it's mostly tape at this point, but I have reread that book through every major transitional period in my life, and each time I realize more things about how it shaped who I was as a person and the roadmap it gave me to becoming a human being and I think that that continues to inspire me uh, to as a writer because it gave me that that realization of the power of fiction so whenever a kid has the gall to tell me that there's no point in reading fiction because you don't learn anything <laughs> um, to me that's that's a tantamount to sacrilege because I know how much fiction can teach us if we have the capacity to listen yeah um i definitely think the first uh piece of fiction for me that i found kind of transcended that i that i found as an early work but later and even today continues to inspire me i just it's just followed me through every phase of my life is uh the princess bride and um it's just very well written there's always something new to uh engage with and i really really appreciate just uh how, how many levels it works on um, from the framing device to, to each and every character. So I think that's definitely one for me. And that kind of goes through all different phases of my life. So that uh, does anybody else have anything that they want to um, talk about for their early uh, yeah, sure. Um, you were talking earlier about Asimov, and I never really considered myself to be a classic science fiction fan. Um, but when I think about it, I do realize there's one author who had a pretty big impact from that 1950s classic sci-fi era, and that's Robert Heinlein. Um, he's more of a conservative writer, and uh, that fits along. That's definitely been more of a in line with my thinking uh, as a person as I've grown up. And I guess... Uh, from that perspective, I realized you could take a political discourse and make it not boring. So um, I guess I really appreciated that view. And just the idea that uh, writing can be anything to anyone. You can be a science fiction writer and you can tell any kind of message you want. It, you know, it, It's not just for conservatives. It's not just for liberals. It's not just for whatever. It's something that can kind of transcend and you can tell any message you want. And I really appreciated that. Do we want to move to once we became creators, what were what encouraged us to refine our craft? I think that's a good idea. Matt, you started off uh, us off last time. Why don't you go again? Okay, I would say this is the hard one because I think there's a lot of things that you kind of learn. Um, you 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 learn without thinking about it a lot, and we've also been somewhat hesitant to go negative if we can avoid it, but. I'm not sure that I really can avoid it. Um, one of the things that inspired me to be better was the Anita Blake series by Laurel Hamilton. In that this series, and this is a weird way of saying an inspiration, but I'm going to get to uh, how it was inspiring. This series was inspiring to me and really great and really kind of introduced me to modern fantasy for the first eight books. And I 
I, it, it served as my gateway into the genre. It taught me a lot of the conventions. And I really valued it for that because modern fantasy to me before had been role-playing in the World of Darkness universe, not really reading it. Um, because I read Laurel K. Hamilton before I read Carrie Vaughn, before I read um, Jim Butcher. And so it taught me, it, it inspired me to think of it as a genre that I could do something in. And it inspired me in that it was a well-written, funny, engaging series. And then it went off the rails. And what it taught me after um, Obsidian Butterfly was that no one is immune to needing an editor. And that if, if you lose track of the core of your series and your characters, it can be very difficult to get back to them. Absolutely. Um, the, the Laurel K. Hamilton series is something that you introduced me to, Matt along with Dragonlance. Um, and yeah, I have the same exact thought where I, I tried so hard to keep with that series, but um, it became clearer and clearer that Laurel K. Hamilton was dealing more and more with her own personal issues um, and uh, not not in a healthy way through the writing. Um, I, I, I believe that writing can be cathartic and, and should be if you want to move people, but there's a point where you kind of fall into that pattern and uh, what you're writing is not helpful and i think that's what happened um but yeah i was kind of in the same boat and but i can definitely see how how you can learn or learn a lesson without having to necessarily go through that uh gauntlet yourself so yeah i definitely see where you're coming from there um as far as as far as kind of uh middle uh learning works for me pushing myself to the next level i think the big one for me is uh, the comic series Lucifer by Vertigo Comics, which is a spinoff of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, um, which uh, for me, I, I was really impressed at uh, how they took all of these different mythologies, all these different uh, ethoses, e ethi, Ethusal. regardless, um, and, and just kind of put them together and they didn't not work, which uh, really kind of impressed me. Um, and uh, not only that is uh, through all this fantastical uh, magic and 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 these these huge titanic struggles between immortals, they did a really good job of focusing it on the character. And sometimes to the exclusion of the main character, some of my favorite episodes of uh, or issues of Lucifer have nothing to do with Lucifer himself or even his his group that uh, is usually involved in most of these these adventures. So um, that one really kind of taught me that sometimes doing a focused character piece can reground your work, recontextualize and really uh, help all of your readers understand the stakes for the common person uh, throughout the uh, body of your work. And I was really impressed by that. For me, it was probably a mixture of a whole bunch of different works because I think for me, the big transitional period was when I started trying to make my own work, trying to learn by doing um, more so than I had been do doing before. And it's just this mishmash of time, probably between the ages of like 14 through 17, that I have a whole bunch that had a big influ influence on me 
um, Ian Flynn, who now is a writer for um, Archie's Sonic the Hedgehog, was probably just instrumental in my development as a comic creator because he gave me a chance on one of his fan projects before he was hired as a regular writer on Archie's works. Um, he did a project called Other M, and I was 13 at the time that I submitted my horrible scrawls <laughs> to him, and he was very kind. He said, you know, um, try fixing this, this, and this, and then send me another submission, which I did, which passed muster. And I learned so much working on that project with him, along with a bunch of other artists. I learned the basics of penciling, inking, how to meet a deadline, how to do layouts. And that gave me so much confidence when I transitioned into my own original works, because I knew what I was capable of on a much more specific level than I had been before that. There was the work of Tracy Butler, who now is fairly well known for Lackadaisy, which is a 1920s um, moonshine smuggling story with cats. And it's beautifully rendered, but I was much more familiar with her work before all of that. And she got me interested in studying anatomy, studying um, how the figure worked, adding intense detail to things. So Tracy was a big influence. There was Carlick Speed, McNeil, and Finder. I loved how much risk she was willing to take. Everything that she did was just so different and so in-depth. Um, There's just so much detail to what she did. And I loved her lettering, so I started studying, studying lettering because of her work and trying to do that by hand. And I never became even a fraction as good as what she was capable of doing, but I got a lot of practice working on it. And then Faith Erin Hicks, who I've talked about on the show before, but Demonology 101 was an epic webcomic that spoke to me, and she finished, which is so rare for webcomics to actually finish, that it had a huge impact on me. Uh, so her work among the half-pixel groups and uh, of Scott Kurtz and Dave Kellett and Brad Geiger and Chris Straub, like, that group was very instrumental for me going, I, you know, I can take my work and I can put it on the web and I can grow a fan base and I can create something that is mine. And, like, that was just all packed into this like, two or three year period where I was really exploring a lot of different things that led to where I am today. Does anybody have any other uh, intermediate works, inspirations? I'm trying to think of the, the, like I said, this one was the harder one because it's not, the things that I read that in, that lit the fire in me, I, I, I remember for all time. And the ones that I'm reading right now that are encouraging me to do better, well, I'm reading them right now. Um, other ones that really made me open my eyes. I think Lucifer was a big one for me, too. And, and to go from Lucifer, I think all of uh, 
Neil Gaiman's work as a whole. Um, in that Border is very much a mashup of my own takes on different things. And the first book that I really read besides Anita Blake that uh, kind of showed me how that could be done was American Gods. And the moodiness and the atmosphericness of his work in everything of his that I've read, um, I think informs what I do. And the way that he creates worlds that are that are real to the feel when when you start poking at them, when you think about them, when you live in them, is something that I hope that I can emulate because it brings such a depth to uh, to the work. So kind of world building. Yeah. And that's that's something that I've spent a lot of time about that I've spent a lot of time thinking about both in the intermediate stage and in my current stages, world building and how you make the fantastical feel accessible and feel real. Verisimilitude is something I talk about a lot and I try to think about a lot because uh, going back to the Dragonlance Chronicles, they did an annotated edition where they talked about their um, their thought processes and why they built the world that they did alongside the text. And one of the intertextual comments was that they, they still had the sun rise in the east and set in the west on the world of Krim. And they did it because they wanted to give an anchor of familiarity to the world so that you felt like you knew something, even with everything else, crazy and different. And how to give those little hooks and and hands up so that people will still feel grounded in your world is something that I care very deeply about. And it's a criticism I have of some fantasy books is that they start with the weirdness too early. Yeah. If you don't have context for your story, it's really easy to kind of get lost um, on, on the subject of, I guess, uh, um, works where, where world building is kind of paramount. Um, this is more kind of, I guess, a franchise than a single individual work, but I've always really uh, been inspired by the work, especially the early work done on Legend of the Five Rings, which is uh, a card game, a tabletop RPG, and a bunch of other loosely affiliated uh, uh, franchise stories based set in a fictional, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Japan, China adjacent sort of universe where it kind of combines and pistaches those cultures together and uh, really really kind of explores what it means to be a samurai or someone who lives in a rigidly structured, uh, socially uh, uh, rigid uh, samurai society. So it kind of, uh, the theme of the series really enforces the concept of honor and self-sacrifice and what to do when your morals conflict 
So I really, really enjoyed how quickly uh, and how thoroughly they built the world. Um, there's no wrong choice. There's uh, just just shades of gray, and uh, which of course is definitely at odds with the Code of Bushido, where you're taught that everything is black and white. So I really, really appreciated how uh, when when they get that right, that series is really, really good for both world building and ultimately for uh, really good opportunities for character study and growth. Let's move on to current inspiration. Robin, what do you think? I think we can just go out of the way and write one inspiration off right now so that none of us have to bring it up. Uh, Do you have something specific in mind? Yes. Everyone go buy a copy of Invisible Ink. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. I wasn't even going to mention it, but yeah. We are obligatory (laughs) mentioning of Invisible Ink. Check. Check. Well, Robin, do you want to get started? The uh, the works of Ursula K. Le Guin is something that I have recently discovered in part because of reader recommendation and um, a friend at the school I work for recommended that I, I look up her writing. And um, it's been really interesting. Her style is not... It's not what I would normally find engaging but there is something at the core of it that is exceptionally interesting to me and so I found it very very efficient writing which is something I personally struggle with and also just to read some of her perspectives on what fiction is I have found very interesting Um, In my copy of The Left Hand of Darkness, there's a segment that I wanted to read that I found very, very interesting about what it is to write fiction and what it means. Open your eyes. Listen. Listen. That is what the novelists say. But they don't tell you what you will see and hear. All they can tell you is that what they have seen and heard in their time in this world, a third of it spent in sleep and dreaming, and another third of it spent in telling lies. The truth against the world. Yes, certainly. Fiction writers, at least in their braver moments, do desire the truth. To know it, speak it, serve it. But they go about it in a peculiar and devious way which consists in inventing persons, places, and events which never did and never will exist or occur, and telling about these fictions in detail and at length, and with a great deal of emotion, and then when they are done writing down this pack of lies, they say, there, that is the truth. And I just found that concept of hiding the truth in lies really, really interesting. And I think about that a lot. And the concept of metaphor and how meaning itself is sort of paradoxically so bound up in in lies. Because like you were talking about with Star Trek or with um, science fiction and fantasy you can talk about things that you cannot talk about in normal conversation without it blowing up in your face. But as soon as you couch it in metaphor, suddenly, not only does it give you the 
ability to talk about something, but it gives you the ability to completely change someone's viewpoint and perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's a really amazing and just incredibly powerful ability that fiction has in a unique way. And so I think as I've gotten older, I've thought a lot more about the purpose of fiction and the power of fiction. And I find that uh, her work in particular is really thought-provoking in that regard. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, using lies to tell the truth is basically our job as creators, as writers. And um, God, what was that quote? Uh, writers use lies to tell the truth. Politicians use the truth to tell lies. Mm. A little on the nose, but I think <laughs> pretty salient, at least. On that note, on the on the things that are inspiring me right now with the the quality of their language, um, I think that the one that I have to turn to. And one that Robin will scoff at. Um, I'm practicing my scoff. Sorry. That's Go ahead. good. You got to get. You know. You can't let it be. You can't rest on your laurels with your scoffing. Right. You got to constantly be proving yourself to the streets. Um, <laughs> is um, the name of the wind uh, by Patrick Rothfuss? The name of the wind and the wise men's fear. Um, in that there is just for all the, the, the criticisms that you can level at it, and the, even though I love the two books, there are definitely criticisms you can level at it. And he is letting so much ride on how the third book is going to turn out. Um, there is, to me, a great beauty to the language. The words the characters speak and the way that things are described that just inspires me to want to not just tell what my characters say better, but to find their voices to tell them in and to describe the world that they are around in a meaningful way. And you can see a lot of the some of the, the descriptions in border of the world of... Um, of rooms and of places and of the qualities of things coming from looking at um, the that series and going, well, damn, I want to be that good. Did I lose everyone no, again? No, I just, I felt like I was supposed to scoff, but I think it's really low to scoff at something that inspires somebody. Right. So... I was trying very hard to make no noise at all so that you would not feel demeaned. <laughs> See, but when no one makes any noise, I think I have, once again, lost my connection. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I just, you also ended on kind of a, a, a lilting upward, which made it sound oh. like you were going to say something else. Nope, that, that was it for that, that part of the inspiration. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I feel no, like I kind of lost the point of the inspiration there with our weird, weird responses. So I, I will uh, re-say, it is a beautiful, beautifully written book, whatever the other criticisms, and it inspires me to want to be more masterful in my descriptive language. Gotcha. 
Um, things that have inspired me recently to think about, and again, this one is going to be both a positive and a negative. Several years ago now, I read the Wizard, uh, the Sword of Truth series uh, by Terry Goodkind, or at least as far into it as I could get. Um, and again, it's one of those where I felt like the first three books were really good, even though the second one does include a magic spell for which one of the components is a nipple. Um, and in each of the first three books, and indeed all of the books, although the, um, the, the effectiveness of it starts to significantly vary in each of these books kind of the central theme revolves around a wizard's rule and the name of the first book in the series is wizard's first rule um and so you go through these first three and in each of them this rule that is revealed to the main character um ends up tying everything together. And it is a great... Um, it's a great way of doing it, and it is very well done, and that everything does come together, and it, it gives an interpretation to the whole book. Um, and they're not, you know, the deepest darkest or deepest most uh uh intellectually challenging things but they are clever little things that tie the book together um and the wizard's first rule is um essentially that people will believe a lie because they want to believe it's true or because they are afraid it might be true and it it that gives an interpretation to everything that has happened that ends up being very interesting. Um, then the series starts to go off the rails because um, essentially the author wants it to be more than... The author once said, if you think that the sort of truth is fantasy, you're not old enough to be reading it. And I think the... Let me see. The one, two, three, four, five, six... The sixth or the seventh book is basically just a fantasy version of Atlas Shrugged, um, complete with these John Galt speech. I was going to ask about that. That's a very odd choice. Terry Goodkind is a hardcore objectivist, and as the series went on, it became more and more blatant that he was advancing the tenets and philosophies of objectivism through his work. Huh. I guess that's kind of, kind of my point was like, if you're working with their early work and you're, you're concentrating on the story and what moves you and you're not specifically trying to tell a message, I usually find that's better. If you're going to do a political discourse, just call it a political discourse. Because, right. uh, I mean, I guess in the same way that Laurel K. Hamilton is, expressing whatever viewpoint she's expressing, which uh, I'm going to assume this is a family-friendly-ish podcast and won't get really into, but it's the same idea. It's, I think there's a, a pattern there, or you, you, you think you've discovered your, the point, your message, and, and you just kind of take it too far. Yeah. I mean, at one point, 
at one point in the series, they are heroically slaughtering peace protesters. This is Terry Goodkind, though, right? So it's kind of a comedy, I guess? No. You're thinking of a different Peach. author, I think. You're thinking of Terry, Terry Pratchett. Pratchett. Yeah. yeah. I was about to say, I don't think Terry Pratchett's much of an objectivist. No. No, that would be... And, and okay, as bizarre as the left guy, okay. As bizarre a left turn as it would have as it was in the actual series, if if Terry Pratchett in like the middle of a Sam Vimes book had suddenly been talking about the leeches on society, it would have been <laughs> insane. <laughs> People's heads would have exploded. Or they would have thought he was doing some kind of joke. Yeah, that didn't land or something. Um, so, so is was that your inspiration? Modern inspiration? That that was two of them. Was um, the the name of the wind, the wise man's fear, and um, the first three books of the Sword of Truth. Do you want to keep going? Do you have another one or? Um. Yeah. I mean, the the, the modern inspirations really. I mean, we've talked about it before, but. Uh, Jim Butcher in both his fantasy series, the Codex Alera, and his um, uh, modern fantasy series, uh, Harry Dres- the Harry Dresden Files, um, I have a huge influence on me. And the, it, it, it hits that sweet spot of serious fantasy horror drama, but with comedy. Um. And I think Codex Alera is a great example of how you do a series where there is a central secret that is integral to where it is going, and you establish it from the beginning, and you hide it in plain sight so that when people look back, they can see, oh, well, I guess, yeah. Um, And then how you can continue to have the series be true to itself after that is revealed. That's a good, that's, that's a magic trick. And that's a really good yeah. skill to cultivate. And, something and that it, I really, really admire when an artist pulls off well. It's one of the yeah. most important magic tricks that an author can have. And I think it's something that people struggle with a lot. I know I struggle with it a lot. Mm. Um, the And we, we've been talking about this in the context of uh, Supernatural, the early seasons before it kind of gets weird, that uh, it's, it is better to tell people the secret early. You get it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to tell the secret early than to crutch on it and hold on to it longer than it can sustain. Yeah. Because you can work a lot more with a uh, spoken secret, a revealed secret. And if you do the magic trick right, no one will notice that it is there. Right. Well, and, and the drama doesn't come from... I, you can do the dramatic irony, but that only lasts so long. Um, when you've got the time bomb ticking under the table, if you're uh, Alfred Hitchcock, you can't sustain a season of television with that. But a lot of writers try, and that's a shame. Yeah, and it's... There are... To, when you... F- Find an example of it that works beautifully. It is something that should be treasured because especially as you grow more genre savvy, as you grow to understand the mechanics behind the scenes in fiction, 
it gets harder and harder for things to surprise you. Mm-hmm. It is a rare movie that I go to, and I think, Corey, you're the same way, uh, where I don't see a twist coming. Yeah, and I'm kind of obnoxious about it, and I'm sorry for that. Um, and And there's a lot of things that once you start seeing them, you can't unsee them. Like, I'm now super aware of product placement. And um, orange and blue. And orange and blue is freaking crack.com's fault. I'm not actually aware of this orange and blue you speak of. Oh, go watch, go pick up five video game releases of the last year and five movie posters slash covers from this last year. And I would bet that more than 50% of them are primarily done up in shades of orange and blue, or there are orange and blue elements somewhere on them. Huh. And it's because orange and blue are opposite ends of the color wheel and provide a very high contrast between them. Right. Which is why they're the colors of the Denver Broncos. Which is why they're, well... Is that why they're the colors? Yes. Of the in general, the, if you look at most uh, patterns for a lot of different yes. sports teams, they'll have some element of opposite on the color wheel. Yeah, well, um, it's not a color used by the NFL in when, when Denver became a team, and they needed a secondary color, so they picked the thing on the, the furthest from it, which was blue. So, G.I. Joe, step up to... Born Identity, um, the orange Batman, no. Batman the Dark Knight, Iron Man 2, pretty much all the Transformers movies. Huh. Yeah, I guess you're right now that I think about it. I usually focus on the kind of metallic grays, because there's a lot of those, too. The Last Airbender. And I'm not saying that it never makes sense. It makes sense in the Last Airbender poster. Um... Because it's the the last Airbender poster is Zuko and Ang, um, so orange and blue kind of fit for them. Uh, but it's the the portals in Portal. Yeah. Um, the more most recent Mortal Kombat cover. Um, it's incredibly prevalent. And predictable is what you're saying. And predictable. And especially on modern shooters covers. Oh, yes. Battlefield where you've just got kind of an orange spotlight on a guy. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Anyway, colors. When it, in that, in something that pulls off one of those tropes or cliches or whatever that people don't like that that I don't see coming and I'm not saying I'm perfect but I see a lot I treasure those incredibly because they are the few things that give me that sense of wonder anymore I love good movies. I love seeing good movies, but few trick magic trick movies get me. And so I love them when they do. And that's what the Codex Alera inspired me with. Uh, Jim Butcher 
uh, the uh, Dresden Files just inspired me with being damn good pretty much at every opportunity. Yeah. Is there a recent film that you feel like has surprised you? It's possible there isn't. I'm trying to think of the last movie I saw where there was a real surprise. Uh, the Giver surprised me with how boring it was. <laughs> We're talking good surprises, Matt. Oh, right. No, I don't think there was a movie that came out this year, and I've seen a fair number of them that because surprised to talk me. about inspirations, because The Giver was one of my favorite books growing up, and I just knew it was going to suck. For me, it's one of those ones I consider to be near unfilmable, and I knew when they give it the YA treatment, I was just so... Dumb. And what's, what's sad is that there was actually a lot of... Um, a lot of cool stuff in it. The black and they did it black and white and slowly introduced color, which I think is like the only way you can do it. Yeah. But. And it was very effective. Mm. It's just the movie was. Yeah. That'll happen when you don't adapt the material correctly. Um, hmm. I guess in terms of uh, me, like I, I, I can't, wait for a film to surprise me anymore but uh, if a film's well written it'll be predictable and still surprise me like uh for me one of my most recent inspirations has been wreck it ralph i was figuring that one would come up because that was what i was thinking about is that Mm -hmm. um that one's got all the writing on the wall but it's done so well and yeah a writing technical perspective like if you were breaking down the screenplay it's incredibly predictable it follows beats like just so so predictably. That said, it's so well written, it's so immersive. You don't notice. You're you're not spending your time predicting. You're spending your time enjoying what's on the screen in front of you, and that's that's that, that's another kind of trick, I guess. Right, and it's I'm not saying by any means that I have to be surprised to enjoy a movie. There are plenty uh, of movies that I know what's going to happen from moment one. I just like it so much I don't care. Yeah, right. And and I guess that's a piece of it. Is there anything that's inspired you guys to see if you can make your work more immersive, more allow people to forget themselves in it? Because that's one for me, Wreck-It Ralph. I'd say uh, recently Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, it has elements of that. Guardians of the Galaxy is inspiring because it is such a bizarre concept that every piece of it needed to hit perfectly. And they almost do that, yeah. Oh, see, for me, they did. I didn't feel there was any note in um, Guardians that was off. I felt Dave Bautista uh, as uh, the knife-wielding guy. I <laughs> can't even remember his name. Um, and I don't think it was his performance. I think it was the writing on his character. Yeah, there's for me, there's one line that yep. actually takes the film from maybe an A, A minus to like a C. What was it? The uh, the bit where he's going through and talking about all of his his friends, and he calls Gamora a whore. Yeah. Okay. It is so Wait. unnecessary, and it's it is so inaccurate. 
Yeah, the character literally says what is factually, technically true. At no point does Gamora offer sex for money. She's it would have not... been more accurate if it had been implied to Star-Lord. That he was a whore, absolutely. Because it's implied multiple times that he does things in exchange for a little bit of hanky-panky favors. At the very least, he's promiscuous, and at no point have we gotten the sense that Gamora is that. Yeah, I, I absolutely... So, that, that writing was lazy, and it felt like a slap in the face in an otherwise very fun film. And it took me right out of it. It was like, okay... Even here, I cannot escape this. My escapism is now no longer escapism. And I, I had to work to get back into the film after that line. So, for me, that, that was a sour note misstep. But the rest of the film I did enjoy. Okay, and I will, I will give you that, that, that. I hadn't thought of that in that context. I laughed at that line because it was ridiculous. But you are absolutely right that, that it is completely out of character and brings in very un unfun elements that did not need to be in there. I immediately knew it was wrong when I heard it. It I just when I heard it I was like that you whoever wrote that messed up. Whoever was supposed to uh edit messed up and I could just feel it. But uh you know, That's a whole subject for a whole nother podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about inspirations, <laughs> that isn't it. But I'm, I'm just letting you know that... Uh, I do think that there's validity to the concept of, of fun. And I think that that's something that often, as writers, we can forget, especially if we're working on dramatic pieces, is that humor is not a detriment. Fun is not a detriment to telling a meaningful story. Right. You can tell a story that has meaning and hits pretty hearty emotional beats that is still entertaining and enjoyable. Um, Brian McDonald calls this the balance of the feminine and the masculine in writing, which I think is another interesting way to look at it, that you have to have these character-driven moments, but you also need to have things that get your blood going and get you engaged and are just fun or exciting. Well, humor so I, humor is character-driven. That's the best piece about it. Is it you know, you don't have humor if it doesn't make sense. The same way you can't have a dramatic beat if it doesn't make sense. And um, the my in my opinion, the best kind of humor is the kind that that comes from those character quirks. It's one of the reasons why I basically can't watch modern comedies because it's all situational. It's all basically a uh, really poorly conceived uh, madcap uh, situations where people would have to be either stupid or un incredibly unlucky to be involved in what's going on, and they are. So um, character-driven comedy is the hardest thing in the world, and there's a reason why a lot of people don't choose to tackle it. Yeah, and there's... Um, the, besides the mm. fact that it was just funny, which... Mm. Um, which, yeah, I agree with you that, that the modern, grim, dark action movie slash comic book slash video game is annoying as hell. Um, what for The most inspiring thing for me was, like I said, in Guardians of the Galaxy, except for that one line, which I will grant you, if 
Quill had been too sleazy, if Rocket, and I really think it, Rocket carried most of it, if Rocket oh, yeah. had yeah, been one did. iota too cutesy. Or annoying, or... Or annoying, or anything, the whole movie would have fallen apart. It is such a delicate machine that it is amazing that it worked because it really shouldn't have. Yeah. I agree that it brought together a lot of elements that really shouldn't work and made them work. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess we both kind of have a uh, thing there. Um, Robin, I imagine you would you would uh i have a thought about what yours might be but i don't want to put it in your mouth so maybe well, i should just use it it's possible because my memory is bad and more than likely i've sat down to think about what inspires me and i've forgotten like 20 things and i'll listen to this as i'm editing it and be like oh you fool you've forgotten everything so i should mention it so you can discuss it so i can agree or deny um, I'm going to go ahead and posit that this one for you would be Megamind. I don't know if Megamind is so much an inspiration as it, it was that... You ever have that bizarre sensation that you watch or read something and it's it has an element of coming home? There's just something about it that... That feels like the sensation of coming home. I can't describe it any other way. It, it just feels right. It's it just you on such a fundamental level. That... Yeah, even even if it's really silly or you can't even necessarily see where the overlap is. Like for me, Megamind is that film. It is the one film that I have found that I can watch over and over and over and lose no enjoyment, even if watching that is back to back. Um. So I don't know if I would call that an inspiration because it hasn't really inspired me to do anything different or new or teaching me something. Um, but it has given me a place to go when I need to bolster my own sense of self if that makes it's any a, sense. a comfort flick. It's a comfort flick in many ways. Um, it feeds my soul. <laughs> yeah. As silly as the film is, um, there's something about it that's, that's really worthwhile to me. I can definitely see that. Yeah, now that you mention it, um, and there's a reason why I picked Wreck-It Ralph over it for my personal one, and that's because I can see the strings in Wreck-It Ralph, but they're all so elegant with... Uh, Megamind, I, I don't know how, I, like, like we were talking about how Guardians of the Galaxy, almost, uh, there were so many things that would have made it not work. I feel like uh, Megamind kind of can be in the same boat, even to in the point where ways. I can't really identify what could have gone wrong. <laughs> Maybe it's just so immersive for me that I can't even really analyze it very well. Well, well it I also think... has that sense of fun that we've been talking about, that sort yeah. of just distracts you from um, picking at the pieces of it. And it sets up expectation well. It plays with expectation. And even the trailers at the time that it came out play with expectation because yeah, they show they you do. basically the first ten minutes of the film 
and nothing about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So you go in with this idea of what it's going to be, and then you, think you, you know discover what the conflict is, yeah. and you don't. Yeah. I think that what, something that could have gone wrong there is anything with someone at the level of Will Ferrell, someone who is so much a, a driving force within a movie that the risk is that it is too Will Ferrell. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think that we've, we've, you can see that in a lot of movies. Like there are movies you look like Tom Cruise movies. You look at it and go, that was a little too Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I could see that there. I think uh, Megamind has a really, really good, uh, it was cast well in that they balance him across from Brad Pitt. Yeah. Who is somebody you, you know, you're like, okay, here's somebody who can clearly play the goody two shoes superhero role opposite of our goofy supervillain, uh, who's the main character. And, uh, the thing that I think makes that work is that Brad Pitt turns in what I think might be the funniest role I've ever seen him in where, where he, he actually is kind of a ringer where you're expecting one thing and you get, really good comedy instead. I think in general that film capitalizes on, like we said, expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike a lot of other films that I've seen. I think, I don't know if I, I would call it inspirational. I think if we're talking in terms of writing and inspirational writing, um, I would put the Simon Pegg, like Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead. That trilogy. Yeah, that, that trilogy. Especially Hot Fuzz. In, in the writing category because those films are so tightly scripted that mm-hmm. re-watching them you see the just intense efficiency of each and every line and then the layers of meaning in every piece is just it's phenomenal to watch happen as a writer and see how much they are doing with how little yeah I, I think it's kind of interesting because they get better as they go. They get much better at the balancing act and, and the kind of uh, the the tightly scripting it. But I think Hot Fuzz is the one that hits the sweet spot because while Shaun of the Dead, it's good and they're feeling that they're still feeling that formula out. In Hot Fuzz, you know, they've clearly learned a few things and they're better. By the time of World's End, I think it's almost a little too slick. Well, yeah. we've we've learned to see its pieces. So where Hot Fuzz still surprised me um at the end the one at the end uh they laid out everything that was going to happen and by that time i could see it they had taught me how to read their book and then when i got to the third the third like read their book read their like it was like there's a code at the beginning of every film Mm -hmm. that they had taught me how to read and so when i watched the third film, I was like, okay, now this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. There was no... There were some surprises, but not nearly to the point as the previous films, because they had gotten so good at not only setting up how that worked, but showing me how it worked. Yeah. The ending surprised me, I'll admit. The, the, they committed to the ending. Yeah, and that yeah they committed surprise. really hard to the ending, and I think that was in their credit. Uh, for me, though, it was just the uh, it wasn't just the being able to read it that contributed so much to kind of a feeling that uh, I'd seen the movie already. Yeah, like the first time you see it, it's for me it was like the second time I'd seen it, which is yeah weird. I've never had that happen before, so 
but eh. I think it's it's good as a trilogy. They shouldn't keep going with that piece. I don't think they will. So <laughs> no, I think they're done. I think yep. they're done with that piece, that era. <laughs> that era. No, I, I guess it is. It spanned over a decade. Um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, I could go on about things I like and how they've inspired me in different ways forever. Um, so we will. Um, I. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a difference between things that you like and things that inspire you because they're not necessarily the same pieces. I mean, that's the reason that for me, Megamind doesn't necessarily qualify as an inspirational piece. Um, but the Earthsea saga does, even though I don't enjoy the writing as much as I do in other other pieces. There's something about it that that changes how you look at things or or view things that I think sets an inspiration apart from um, an enjoyable or inf- even influential in terms of it influences your style, but not necessarily inspires you to do different. Right. Well, speaking of inspirations, who's inspired to share their inspirations with us from this past week? All right, so in the theme of inspirations, um, we've talked about things that inspired us when we were kids, things that inspired us as we grew, things that are inspiring us now, but what is inspiring us this week? Immediately. Immediately. Right now, this instant. For this past Halloween, uh, Robin and I went over to a friend's house, and we saw for the very first time the 1979 feel-good hit of the summer, Alien. <laughs> Which uh, neither of us... Whole... Sorry, what? Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. Actually, it's a funny story, and it kind of ties back into that uh, inspiration I knew, thing. I knew you hadn't seen it when we were in high school. I assumed you had, I don't know, corrected that at some point before now. We have. I did. That was last <laughs> Friday at the tender age of 28. Um, actually, yeah, the the story here is is uh, Alien is the pretty much the only movie. I, I was kind of weaned on R-rated flicks. The third movie I saw in theaters was Total Recall. Um, and and man, my parents won't will give you an earful about how much they got an earful over that. But um, the one movie my dad said I couldn't watch until I was age 16 was Alien because it freaked the hell out of him when he was a kid. Um, he went and he saw it in theaters when he was 19, and uh, he revealed to us recently that the uh, reason why he it, it, it had such an impact on him is because he'd seen a similar movie back when he was, I think, six and his younger brother was four. Um that was about an alien on a space station going around eating people. So when he went and saw Alien when he was 19, and it was it was basically a reimagined, modern, super well-done version of the thing that terrified him as a child. So he absolutely was terrified of that film, and as a result wouldn't expose me to it until he knew I was strong enough, which was apparently age 16. But by the time I was 16, I'd seen Aliens, Alien Resurrection, Alien 3, um, and I don't think they'd come up with the AVP stuff yet. But uh, the point is, is I I had absorbed enough pop culture to really kind of understand the plotting of it anyway, so I never really was inspired to see the film itself. But uh, we, we went over and we, we changed that up this, this past weekend. Uh, 
mostly because I picked up a copy of Alien Isolation, and we thought it would be a really, really good idea to know what the hell we were getting into, since it's pretty much a direct sequel to the original film. Yeah. Um, so, so we went and watched that, and I was just inspired, uh, one, by its technical achievement, in that uh, since it predated CGI, the set work was incredibly detailed and very, very, uh, you were talking about the vermil- verisimilitude, is that right? Um, yeah. Um, that that a lot of modern films I feel lose out on because they're so focused on the CGI. They put that money on the screen, and uh, but I can tell. I can always tell when something's CGI'd, and uh, it takes me out of the thing. But this is back when they did everything with sets. They did everything with models, and uh, therefore it really lent a real lived-in feel to the entire proceeding, which I thought was very good. Um, the film wasn't that scary. <laughs> it might have helped that they're were for adults watching it with the light on riffing on everything but um at the same time i did enjoy how uh well done it was it was a tightly constructed story um the exposition was well uh hidden within dialogue that really expressed uh people's character so they were they were world building while they were characterizing and they did it very very fleet uh fleetly very very quickly with uh statements that really kind of expressed how people lived in this world, how they become uh, jaded. I mean, it's basically a movie about space truckers. So we're looking at a spaceship and going, wow. And they're like, when do I get paid? And that, that really kind of helps uh, this feel that, man, I could be this person. Uh, so as a result, it's, it's immersive. It's, it's well-written um, and, and it's very efficient. So I it guess really this week highlighted- I'm inspired by... It oh, really highlighted to me something that, you know, sometimes it's hard for you to tell something is present until it's gone. Mm-hmm. It highlighted to me how unnecessary exposition has become so dominant in a lot of films and television. Oh, yeah. Because Alien has no unnecessary exposition. In fact, there's a, a there's large chunks of very understated... Um, people just going through the rote motions of their work, which is exactly how they would do that. They, and I kept subconsciously looking for the rookie character that wouldn't know what they were talking about <laughs> that would have to be explained to. Because in every film that you'll see now, there's almost always one of those characters. And their entire purpose is to provide an environment in which there is exposition. Well, this is our space truck, and uh, when you hitch it to our space tow, we get the... Yeah, yeah, it's really kind of abusive. I I think part of it is back in 1979, uh, if you're making a high-budget science fiction flick, you assume that your uh, audience, your target audience, is going to be fairly well-educated. Today, in order to make your budget back with a high-end science fiction flick, you have to cater to everybody, which means you need to explain to the lowest common denominator. But it and wasn't, I think that actually it, hurts the film. It, but I don't know if that's the case, because it, it wasn't necessary. Sure. What really mattered in that was that these this was their job. This was their life. This was their normal day-to-day. And if you'd had someone explaining all the pieces of it, it actually would have taken away from its normalcy. Right. So, which is so important for the uh, subversion of horror later. Yeah. 
So I don't know if it's something that people are trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator, as that we have been taught that everything needs to be explained. Yeah. And Alien did not bother. Yep. Yeah, I was very, very surprised at how... Like, um, they, they mentioned the company in this one, and I know for a fact, having watched the other films, the company they're referring to is Wayland yutani That is never mentioned in the first film. The name of the company yep. they work for is completely absent. It's just the company. Yep. Which I think actually works better, because you can't personify it. And that's the whole point. It's supposed to be this endless, uh, this uh, faceless organization that's just screwing you. So, I don't know. I, <laughs> I guess I'm inspired by, uh, by older school filmmaking technique having something better to say than these young whippersnappers. <laughs> you get off my learn. I've become Brian McDonald. <laughs> no, if that was the case, you'd need to go a lot farther back in your preference for movie films. He's got to like Alien. It I might be on the cusp. But I think that's right, yeah, on the cusp. Anyway, um, that's what's inspired me this week. Horror. <laughs> for okay. me, uh... For me, it I'm thinking of something that kind of inspired me today. I was on a field trip with the kids that I work with, and I was sitting on the bus with them. It was probably a 40-minute bus ride. It was, it was pretty long. And I was sitting next to this kid who was watching me uh, draw because I'd brought a little notebook and I was drawing in it. And he started, we started talking a lot about stories and images and how you kind of create images to tell a story that anyone can draw if they practice long enough, but actually turning a drawing into a piece of artwork means learning how to inspire people to write their own stories when they look at the image. And through that conversation, he started talking about stories that he was writing and that he was working on. And there's just a really beautiful moment that happens when people start to talk about their stories and when they first begin to speak it's there's this feeling out they're trying to see if you're going to to get bored or or laugh at them or anything like that and when they get past that threshold and they realize that you're paying attention it's like this light comes on in people and to see that light come on in this 10-year-old kid as he's talking about his story and all the things that he wants to do. and It's just a magical experience. And I just really love just wish, witnessing that passion and how there's no age barrier to that. I've seen that happen with young kids. I've seen that happen with people in, in their 80s and 90s. That if they have a story to tell they suddenly light up. It looks like like a light goes on. It's a really clear light light switch that gets flicked, and it's just it's really cool to witness. And I just, in general, I'm feeling inspired by that um, experience. Cool. It's always really really nice to to see that love. Uh, for for storytelling or, or just kind of that uh 
Well, I mean, it can happen with anything, too. It doesn't just have to be stories. It's when you get people talking about something that they truly care about. Engagement is yeah. the word I was looking for. Yeah, there's there's something special about that. Um, it's it's like we become more than ourselves in mm-hmm. that moment. Yep, it truly is. Cool. Matt? So I've got two things that kind of inspired me this week um, or recently. Uh, the first is the Avengers 2 trailer. Don't spoil it. Robin hasn't seen I'm it. I'm specifically avoiding watching it just in case... Uh-huh. I've seen it though, so you can spoil to me. Uh, mute yourself, Robin. Maybe no. Wait, no, it doesn't work. Well, why are you avoiding seeing it? You know, it, I can't exactly tell you. I think I just don't. I'm tired of watching trailers and having the expectation built for me. I'm already excited for the film. I already know that the chances of me enjoying it are pretty darn high. And I don't want any expectation beyond that. I don't want to have an idea of what I'm getting into until I get into it. Um, Matt, you were talking earlier about how uh, once you kind of become well-versed in genre fiction, it's really hard to surprise you. I've seen the trailer, and I felt like some things have been spoiled for me. So I think Robin's making a really good choice. Uh, good or not, it's I'm, I'm like the mother that's like, we want to be surprised by what gender the baby is. Like... <laughs> We're pretty sure it'll be human. Beyond that, we don't really care. And that's, like, again, I, I think that's fine. As a, as a sidebar, have you ever seen uh, the or heard the um, Garfunkel and Oates song, Pregnant Women Are Smug? No, I have not. Okay. You need to look this up uh, <laughs> because it's brilliant and what you could just commented made me think of one of the lines from it where they go through and they sing the song but it's also intercut with moments of you know talking between a pregnant woman and a non-pregnant woman and they go so do you want a boy or a girl oh it doesn't matter as long as it's healthy really because i don't feel like those two things are related it's not like one or the other oh really as long as it's healthy and then they go back to singing i can't wait to hear someone say don't care if it's brain dead. Don't care if it's limbless. If it's got a penis. Um, see, and I like I yes. Looking at the Avengers trailer, since I know what movies do, kind of broadly lays it out for me. But again, the the trailer struck me as being one of those things like Wreck It Ralph, where yeah, I kind of know what's gonna happen, but. The moment they announced that it was Avengers Age of Ultron, I feel like I kind of filled in a lot of what was going to happen. I guess. Um, But watching the trailer, I was so pumped by the end and saying, screw you, take my money, (laughs) that it was worth it. That that the, the rush of, I want to see this now, especially when they released an extra long version that includes the scene that leads up to the first part of the trailer. Uh, yeah. Where of that? So, yeah. So that's inspiring me right now. Um, the other one and Robin may scoff again, although probably not since she didn't scoff last time I quoted this. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss recently came out with another, uh, book. 
Um, not day three of the King Killer Chronicle, like everyone wants him to, but a small character-driven novella called The Slow Regard of Silent Things that I love it just for the fact that it exists, that it is a book that takes... It is a novella that takes a interesting minor side character and does not spoil her whole past, does not give you anything more than a glimpse into her psyche as she prepares for something. And it has a, a great title, and I love things that take chances with titles. Sure. I think you have an overinflated sense of what Robin will scoff. Oh, I know. I you just also know have that an overinflated sense of what I'm capable of remembering. Who is? Who are we talking about? It's what? one King... of those authors you don't like, I guess. Kvothe. Is it the same thing as the name of the wind thingy? Yes. Yes. Okay. And you like what reason... you like. I I will reserve the right not to like it, but I'm no, not no, going to no. say you're and not allowed you're... to. The only reason I kept making scoffing jokes was because I know that Robin doesn't like it. Yeah, yeah. I'm fully capable of accepting that Robin likes some things and I like other things, and that's okay. <laughs> oh, Very good. of you. I mean, everyone else is allowed to be wrong. <laughs> right. I was going to make that joke and you beat me to it, you jerk. Yeah. Wait, did I say <laughs> I mean, wrong. Wait, what? Matt's wrong. I'm right. Got it. Thank you. Sure, that that's how that went. Um, <laughs> that's exactly how it went. I have to live with her, Matt. All right, that's how that went. <laughs> Inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, back back on the uh, uh, Avengers trailer, I was pleased to uh, uh, hear them do their own take on the Pinocchio song. Which, of oh, course, yeah. they can do because Marvel's owned by Disney, who owns Pinocchio. Using that Disney money. I just, <laughs> wow. That's like, like, it's kind of meta almost, where it's like, who's taking over now, Disney? You bought us? Are you sure we didn't buy you? Disney is run by Ultron. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Avengers 2, Age of Disney. Age of Mickey. Mickey. How about Age of Walt? Yes. Actually, the frozen head of Walt Disney would be an awesome Avengers villain. <laughs> he would demand that they shave off all their mustaches. It's true. The Iron Man just wouldn't stand for that. Actually, yeah. Or Thor. I'm amazed that that uh they're they're allowed to maintain facial hair. Thou hast demanded that I remove my manly mustache? Yeah, but Robert Downey Jr. would walk. He probably has a I get to have whatever facial hair I want clause. <laughs> well, it's always the same. And it's never what he wears, you know, when he's not Iron Man. So I don't think it's whatever he wants. I think it's whatever they have decided is the, the Stark. Nah, he's just going to roll out in mutton chops next time. <laughs> That'll be Civil War. Yes. <laughs> we'll clearly represent the South. <laughs> so do we want a spoiler about Captain America 3? We already have. 
Right. Oh, okay. I didn't know if Robin was self-censoring from that as well. Oh. No, I mean, I know the new releases that are coming out. Yeah. But Still no Black Widow, but I'm encouraged by Captain Marvel. I meant they revealed some... They revealed what some of the plot of Cap 3 is going to be. Yes. Well, it says Civil War right in the title. Yes. And if you okay. stayed aware of the comics in I'm, the past hey, years... In, in, a world, in a world where you are self-censoring from the Avengers 2 trailer, I want to make sure I'm not spoiling anything. I, I, I appreciate the uh, consideration of my willing ignorance. Well, I think it's kind of interesting because uh, me as a comic reader or lack thereof, I have no idea really who Ultron is. I'm not super aware of him in the comics. I am pretty aware of Civil War, though. Which is interesting, considering that that actually had quite a big impact without being read. Which one? That makes sense. Civil War? The fact that you're aware of Civil War, having not read anything about Civil War, I find interesting as an, as an idea. Yeah. Um, it was it was pretty out there, and that was right around the time when we were reading Invincible. So every time we'd go in for a trade copy, man, Civil War was right there on the shelf, right in your face. That's true. It was a big thing. So maybe they just branded it well. It could be, or maybe it was a concept that people found interesting and compelling. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is it was right around when uh, Marvel was just gearing up with their first films. Yeah. So. You know, people were like, oh, well, what's going on in the comics right now? Well, this. So it's it's kind of come full circle, right? They're starting to use the plot lines from right when they were starting to do the films. It's really strange. So that is our inspirations. Indeed. So this has been a podcast full of things that have inspired us. If you guys would like to share what has inspired you as you've grown up, that would be awesome because we would probably find a lot more interesting material to read and research ourselves so mm. please feel free to share a comment or send us an email you can send us an email at info at mocopress.com and you can always go to mocopress.com to leave a comment on any given podcast as well so i'd be i'd be really interested in hearing what other people um have experienced as influential works so, Matthew, where can we find more of your work? You can find more of my work on the this week hit above, or last week hit above 200 page views because I cheated and added a blog post on a third day website, border-ks.com. And you can find more of my work at leylinescomic.com or you can go to, as I said, mocopress.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support this and our other stories, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash mocopress. There's a lot of projects that we want to do and helping support us there can make those possible sooner. So thank you so much for your support and for listening. We hope you tune in next time. for this episode was created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com.